Imagine a man who sees himself as so incredibly righteous that even the small-town Baptist church that he founded might be a bit too liberal for him. That was Dr. John Huntington's story of Lovell, Wyoming. The town had a population of just under 2,500 people and one traffic light. It also had a monster who molested hundreds of women and girls as young as three years old. More than 20 years after the monster was finally caged, the town is still divided on who the real monster was. I'm so glad you've joined me for this episode of The Unlovely Truth. I'm your host, private investigator Lori Morrison. Let's tackle yet another story from the world of true crime, and we'll see what spiritual and safety takeaways we can find there. I believe that it is everyone's calling, especially believers, to be what I call a different kind of PI, a person of impact. It is so much easier to do than you might think, and we'll talk about how you can be a PI for someone this week. This is Season 4, Episode 21. Our book this week is Doc, The Rape of the Town of Lovell by legendary true crime author Jack Olson. Our guest is Beth Howell, founder of BHG Consulting Group. She's been a member of the Association for the Treatment of Sexual Abusers since 2017, and she serves on the Governor's Commission to Prevent Violence Against Women in Arizona. We'll talk to her in just a bit, but first, we're going to investigate this week's case. His patients describe Dr. Story's personality as bleh, almost non-existent. Since he was eventually the only doctor in town, necessity kept his waiting room full of the town's women. They were mostly Mormons, sheltered and often surprisingly naive about the mechanics of sex. They were taught to be deferential to men, even those with blah personalities. It never occurred to any of them to question why a routine pelvic exam would take Dr. Story 45 minutes to complete. On the rare occasion that someone thought that maybe the doctor had crossed some boundaries, they usually told themselves that they must be imagining things. After all, he was a doctor. The sports physicals that he gave teenage girls included more areas being examined than seemed necessary. But Dr. Story was the expert, so the girls just didn't question him. You have to stop and think that Sex is just not talked about in upright Mormon families, so many of Dr. Story's victims were either too young or too inexperienced to know what he was doing to them or to have the right words to be able to describe it to anybody. Two adult sisters told their Mormon bishop. He said that he'd heard about these problems for years. All he did was advise them to change doctors. Other leaders questioned them about whether they were having an affair with the doctor. They said that the sisters could be expelled from the church over what the doctor had done to them. They seemed to think that the problem had to lie with the women. These sisters' own mother, Arden MacArthur, had always defended the doctor. But finally, there were just too many stories out there, and she finally accepted who and what the doctor really was. Now, these sisters' husbands had a much harder time when they learned what had been done to their wives. It didn't take long for other women to reach out to this family with past tales of abuse of their own at the doctor's hands. They were relieved to get it off their chest to someone they thought would understand, because up until now, no one had believed them. Some had even tried going to the state medical board, but they were told it would just be their word against the doctor's. 
Wyoming's laws regarding sexual abuse by physicians weren't really very victim-friendly at the time. Arden had been told that she needed more victims to make complaints before anybody on the board would even look at what Dr. Story was accused of. So Arden made it her mission to find more women willing to admit what Dr. Story had done to them and file a formal complaint. It took a lot of time and a lot of prodding by Arden, but finally enough women complained to the medical board that a hearing was held. And that's when the town started taking sides. Dr. Story insisted that he was the victim of gossip and false allegations. The local police chief refused to believe his favorite niece when she said she had been raped by Story. But finally, enough women came forward that criminal charges could no longer be avoided. These victims were nearly all either Mormons or Hispanic women. None of them went to Dr. Story's church. His known rape victims ranged in age from 10 to 68, and educated guesses placed their number between 150 women and over 1,000. I can just hardly even wrap my brain around that. Story was convicted on some counts and found not guilty on others. Some of his supporters threatened the victims with vengeance in the hereafter. Others threatened a more immediate settling of scores. John Story was sentenced to 15 to 20 years at Wyoming State Penitentiary on six counts of sexual assault of women. His supporters continued to raise money to try to free him. Appeal after appeal was filed, but five of the six convictions were upheld. I want to share a quote with you from Brian Stevenson, and he's the author of Just Mercy, A Story of Justice and Redemption. I featured that book on the very first episode of the Unlovely Truth podcast. Brian has done amazing work with death row inmates, and he says, quote, each of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done, end quote. I completely agree with that. And I would say that the flip side of that is true as well. We all have to be willing to believe that none of us is as good as the best thing we've ever done. People who have served the public well, people like doctors, nurses, law enforcement officers, teachers, and even pastors, are capable of committing evil acts. If a trusted person in your life has done something to hurt you, please tell someone. If they won't believe you, tell someone else. If the thought of doing that is too overwhelming, You can contact me, and together we'll figure out how to get you some help. Just like John Story was eventually released from prison, so are the majority of people convicted of sex crimes. Today we're going to talk with Beth Howell, who founded BHG Consulting Group. Beth is dedicated to ending generational abuse within families who have experienced the hardship and trauma resulting from sexually abusive behavior. Amazingly, she works with both victims and offenders to make communities safer for all of us. I know that you'll find her work as impactful as I did. I am so happy that you are here with us today, Beth. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. We're going to dive right in because like you and I talked about earlier, we could go on and on all day about this, but I want people to understand your background because it's so, so interesting. You worked in adult probation where you spent a lot of time interviewing offenders including sex offenders, while they were awaiting sentencing. And I think a lot of people would find that kind of intimidating. So tell us what it's really like and how it led you to the wonderful work that you're doing now. Well, yes, thank you. I mean, that was uh, my college job was going to the jails to interview the inmates awaiting sentencing. A lot of the clients I took weekly were 
I would get a new set of maybe 10 to 12 offenders to interview. And many of my colleagues and peers did not want to interview the sex offenders, but I was a psych major turned criminal justice turn. You know, I was a college student trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And I knew nothing about sex offenses at that time. I can't remember if my parents, right, ever talked to me about sexual offending. And so the psychology behind, you know, the the sex offending was interesting to me. So I would take those cases and interview those men in jail awaiting sentencing. And so I say males, men, the vast majority were, were men. I have had female clients, but I just want to clarify the vast majority of those were men. And I will say Going to the jail at first is intimidating, right? Is It's intimidating. You hear those bars, you know, clang really loudly behind you. You're locked in. I don't have the freedom to walk out of the door. You know, guards have to let you in and out. So it can be very intimidating. At the same time, I got really used to it. I spent two to three days a week sometimes at the jails going in and out. And, and I've been in prisons throughout my career with adult probation. And so it is intimidating. But I think the more I talked to offenders and was just curious about their stories, right, their stories, where they were from, their background, I think it became less intimidating because I think I came in with my own mistaken beliefs or my own, um, I don't know, prejudice is the right word, my own, I guess, idea of what these offenders or any offender may be like. And so I think talking to just thousands and thousands in my career has led me to just a better understanding. Um, very few people, if any, really intimidate me. Of course, there are very scary people, but a lot of times I think just talking to them and helping me understand them better led to me being less intimidated over time. It's so interesting because I did some probation work. I've done jail ministry. I've done domestic violence court work. And I think people think that these, you know, criminals, offenders, however you want to term it, they live under some rock somewhere or in a cave and they only come out to commit their crimes and then they go back. But they are our neighbors, professional service people we go to, like doctors, like in our book this week. They're coaches, they're teachers. They're from all walks of life, aren't they? They are. Most of the time, you or your child, someone you know, is victimized by someone you know. The stranger danger is, is a myth. Very, very few offenses are committed by strangers. Most of the time, it is family or friends, colleagues, coaches, teachers, people like that, that are the ones that offend against us or our children. Yeah, not strangers. And I think, too, we also forget sometimes that when someone has been arrested, convicted and imprisoned for a sex offense, the vast majority of them are going to get out someday. Yes. And so work like yours is so very, very important because we want them coming out as better citizens than they were when they went in. So give us a quick 30,000 feet view of once you start working with someone, what are you trying to accomplish and how are you doing it? So, yes, I was a probation officer after college and I worked with the sex offender population. And then I was a supervisor for about 14 years, all working with sex offenders. And I think when someone gets out of jail or prison, sometimes they don't even get jail or prison these days, but they're coming to probation. And your job is to understand their risk. Many offenders come out in some sort of denial of what they did, which is normal. It's normal because there's a lot of shame involved with sex offenses. So most of the time they have a very hard time telling their family members, yes, I did do this, right? 
we work with treatment providers to help them understand and work through some of that denial so they can accept the things that they've done so they can then understand why they did those things. There's a series of assessments they'll take most of the time. And I'll say every state's probably different in what they have them do. But there's this variety of assessments that help us understand their sexual risk, sexual arousal. And then we want to get them in treatment right away. So they have a provider that specializes. And I will say these are specialized providers. So even when I have victims come to me and say they want treatment, I would say we want specialized therapists that understand sexual offending, sexual offenses. You want a specialized therapist in this field treating the offenders and and if the victim, again, wants to go to therapy, a specialized therapist. I love the fact that you also work with victims. Yes, absolutely. You, you really do have a holistic approach to this problem because I think sometimes we can fall into one or the other side of the road ditches. You know, we're either let's lock them all up, throw away the key, they're useless to society, they have no value, or we pity them too much. A lot of them do have difficult backgrounds. I get that. But we want to not hold people accountable. Mm -hmm. And so you really want to address all of that and address what the victim is going through. Because so many women who have been sexually assaulted that I have talked to feel that the entire system is against them. If you or I are charged with a crime, we all want to have those rights. Absolutely that, you know, we're innocent and self-proven guilty. At the same time, I feel like the system does set us up for this victim versus offender. And that can be so hurtful to victims. And, you know, have an offender who's untreated doesn't understand even why they did the things that they did because they have not entered any sort of treatment or therapy. And so I do appreciate taking a more holistic approach to these things. And keep in mind, a lot of these things are very personal. These are people that most likely offended or assaulted someone. That was a family member and a loved one, a family friend. So bringing people together to understand what happened and heal the best we can. I've seen this happen. And, and even in incest cases, you have family molesting family, right? And and really getting them in with the right therapist and provider and people that can help them walk them through. Because in most cases, it's not stranger. It is it is someone you know. And how can we work through some of those some of those issues together? And I am big on learning how to trust appropriately. Because you're right, a lot of the people who hurt us are people that are close to us. So how do you think it plays into what you're doing when you have an offender who is in an especially trustworthy position, a coach, a physician, a pastor, that sort of thing? You know, they've, they've used that trust to be able to facilitate what they've done. How do you work with them? And how do you work with victims who maybe blame themselves because, you know, this offender is held in high esteem in their community and they think, well, it must have been me. Yeah, it's never the victim's fault. Obviously, it's never your fault. And it is the responsibility of the offender. The offenders, they will be in therapy. Clients I have now, I guess, understand they struggle in the system too. The system is a hard thing to navigate and a lot of we have in our state lifetime probation. And so you have training issues related to probation. Because this is such a specialized field, offenders need kind of like, what do I need to understand myself? Will I ever see my own kids again? What does reunification look like? 
because there's a lot of restrictions and in many cases, rightfully so. But until we get those assessments done, it's hard to say what they can and can't do or how do they work themselves back into their families, right? So I help them now on the consulting side related to probation matters. I do understand the treatment they're supposed to go through. So whether it's using responsible language or if they're struggling with something, we talk it through how to best kind of navigate like what they're thinking, feeling, how to talk to their probation officers about what they're struggling with, how to talk to their treatment providers about what they're struggling with. And a lot of these folks do struggle with thinking patterns that have to change. Some of them do struggle with a true sexual deviancy. And so being able to, I guess, help them navigate through those things is kind of what I do now. One thing I talk about a lot, and when you talk about family reunification, that that just kind of made this come to mind for me. But I talk a lot about the ripple effects of crime. You know, you have a victim. They're not the only ones suffering. They have loved ones suffering. Depending on the notoriety of the crime, their whole community could really be impacted. Is this something that offenders really think about? Do you try to get them to realize the true scope of the impact of what they've done? Yes, there's some amazing treatment providers that we work with here. And absolutely, because those are secondary and tertiary victims, right? And and because there is a ripple effect. I actually just met with a secondary victim probably about a month ago. Her loved one, it was her ex-husband who had molested, I think it was a niece, and it just destroyed the family. But she has no rights. In our state, we have victims' rights. I think I think every state must have victims' rights. But, but she is a secondary victim. She lost her entire family. She lost so much because of his actions. Now, I'm not involved. I don't know what he's doing. But there is a, there is a large piece of sex offender treatment that deals with empathy and understanding the role that the offender put the victim in and also his own family members, whether he has a spouse or parents or children. It impacts a lot of people, employers, their coworkers, aunts, uncles, people, you know, that, that really, they, I guess, let down, for lack of a better word, I'm shocked with their behavior. And I think that those people need to understand that counseling might be appropriate for them as well. I think sometimes we shrink back and say, oh, well, you know, that didn't happen to me, but it sort of did. Because like you yes. said, you, you lose family members, you might lose a job. You certainly are going to lose community support if you're related to someone who has done something that our society sees as being so taboo. If you're out there and you're listening, what type of counseling would you suggest that, that these folks look into? I absolutely would suggest counseling and therapy to, to help you process and understand your own feelings about it. And it's okay that you have those feelings. I've, I've met some people that I understand I'm not the hands-on victim. And so they'll try to minimize their own feelings, but you're entitled to your own feelings about what happened. And I would absolutely seek out a specialist in this area that you can work with to work through your own feelings about what happened. Let's get super practical for a minute. Not that we haven't been, but just nitty gritty day to day. What would you tell people to keep their eyes open for? What kind of signs would you say should merit a little further investigation? You know, if you have a child that is suddenly acting like they don't want to be around a certain person, you might be wanting to ask that child why. They might have a hard time coming forward with that. So how would you handle that kind of situation? What kind of questions would you ask and what would you look for? 
The one thing I always talk, even before we get to that part where something perhaps could have happened is I always encourage people to look for healthy boundaries and healthy boundaries are so, so important. So if there's someone or people, you know, hanging around your children, young child, teens, and it seems how they're speaking to them, even in text, right? Because so many things happen electronically. Uncle so-and-so is texting me and asking me weird things. You know, red flags, like the healthy boundaries, you know, an uncle shouldn't be talking to their niece or nephew in certain manners, right? Or people who perhaps want to spend alone time with your children that just kind of, I always also tell people, trust your gut too, because your gut is so important. I'm, I'm a firm believer in your gut. And so healthy boundaries, how people speak to your children, how people interact with your children whether it's in person or online, never feel bad for saying no. Like if someone, oh, can I babysit? No, you know, do not feel bad. I think a lot of people I have talked to, they feel bad because they don't want to say no. But I would say, say no, talk to the person, not in a, do you want to molest my child way? But, but having a healthy conversation with them about, hey, you know, I don't like how you're talking to my daughter or so-and-so, could you please Because offenders know, they do know sometimes when they hear someone like, oh, wow, I better back off. This person may be on to me because we haven't talked about offender kind of typology a lot. But it's when you stand up for yourself or your child, the offender does sometimes, I would say, think twice before continuing with you or, like I said, your child. So healthy boundaries is so important. Obviously, making sure what our kids are doing online is really important. Because that is kind of the stranger danger, I'd say these days, what our kids are doing online and who might be talking with them or preying on them. I love that you brought up boundaries because I tell people, make no your new favorite word. Yes. It is absolutely okay to say no. And I think people of faith, especially, yeah, we want to be nice. We want to be sweet. We don't want to make anybody feel bad. They'll get over it is my motto. (laughs) They'll be just fine. Your child, your teen whoever it is you're protecting, that's the most important thing. It's funny you bring that up. There's a book I'll recommend to your audience or an author, if I may, Dr. Anna Salter. She is well-renowned in this field and actually interviews and writes in her book these interviews that she has. And Christians, a lot of these offenders cite Christians as their target because simply what you just said, whether it's being so forgiving or kind, And all those values that people can sometimes take advantage of. And the other topic, I have a channel I do with a therapist on YouTube, Beth and Missy Talk. And we go in more depth also to how to talk to your kids, red flags and signs. There are some of those videos on there if your audience is interested. We interview a therapist, friend of ours who specializes in treating children who are impacted by sexual abuse. So I wanted to say those things because we could, of course, talk about this forever. But those two things that I would recommend if your audience wants to hear more on those topics. And I'll put links to those resources in the show notes. So make sure you grab that for yourself, share it with your friends that have kids. And of course, you know, not all sex offenders prey on children. But I think one thing we think about when we think about kids being abused is the whole idea of grooming. And I read a fascinating book where the author said that really maybe a better way to think about it is testing. Because grooming, it almost feels like they're preparing the child. Mm -hmm. But what they're doing is, 
and you alluded to this a little bit, they're trying to see who is going to be an easier victim than another. Any type of criminal, whether it's sex offense, whether it's burglary, they're looking for the easy road. So if you're teaching your kids, your teens, your friends, adults even who don't know this, if you're teaching them those boundaries, you know, if something feels weird, it's okay to say no. Here's red flags to look for. You know, you don't have to trust somebody just because they have a particular title. And so those uncomfortable conversations, having them before you think anything has happened is a great way to minimize the possibility that something will happen. You're absolutely correct. Starting when your children are small with appropriate conversations for their age. So as they get older, it's not strange to your children that you are having these conversations with them and know that they can always come and talk to you and tell you if they're feeling uneasy about something or someone and any situation that they may find themselves in. Like you said, being fascinated with the psychology of the criminal mind. The offender in our book this week, he was an expert at finding the people that would be easiest to victimize. That's why we have to have these uncomfortable conversations, because we don't want to be that person. Maybe your face will get a little red. Maybe you'll be a little embarrassed, but we need to have these conversations to keep ourselves, our families, our communities as safe as we possibly can. So I love stories. I think they're really, really great to learn lessons. So can you give us a quick story about someone who, whether it was a victim or offender, through the programs you work with them on, they really got it. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I have so many stories. I like the happy stories better than the failure stories where unfortunately, you know, they went back to prison. But no, I have so many, so many stories. One in particular, there was a client that I had who really spent probably 25 years involved in the justice system for an offense he committed when he was, I think, 22 and his victim was 13. He went to prison for about 10 years, got out of prison. He's really done the work. I do want to add, not every offender has a troubled childhood. Is That does not cause sex offenses, right? But he did have a very, very just awful childhood. This is someone today that by all counts would be back in prison his whole life. Got out of prison for that offense, passed a sex history polygraph we call. He has no other victims. He really worked his treatment program started a business, very successful, and living a good life now off probation. So just proud of him, proud of what he's accomplished. It was not easy. It is not easy, but did it. Well, I want to thank you again for being here, for sharing your expertise with us, for sharing not only things that we can do to make things better, but sharing that there is hope because this is a difficult, difficult topic. And it's so easy just to say, That's a hopeless thing. We're just not going to worry about it. We're not going to work on it. But you've shown that there's hope not only for offenders, for victims, for families, and for communities. So thank you so much. And real quick before we go, if people want to connect with you and learn more about this, what's the best way for them to do that? My website is www.bhgconsultinggroup.com. And I'm also on Instagram. All the links are on my website, but BHG is my Instagram as well. Feel free to follow me for any education stuff that I'm up to. DM me. I'd love to chat. Thank you. Oh, you are more than welcome. And we'll have links to everything in the show notes. Please take advantage of that. And support groups like Beth's. What she's doing is so, so important. Thank you again for joining us. Thank you.
For our Bible passage this week, I want to look at Isaiah chapter 59, verses 14 and 15, and I'm reading from the Common English Bible. Justice is pushed aside. Righteousness stands far off because truth has stumbled in the public square and honesty can't enter. Truth is missing. Anyone turning from evil is plundered. The Lord looked and was upset at the absence of justice. Not much has changed since Isaiah's time, has it? Justice and righteousness still seem far away at times. But this isn't what God wants. Not everyone welcomes the truth being made known, but the truth is always worth telling, even an unlovely truth, maybe especially an unlovely truth. How else can we hold people accountable and get justice for hurting people? It can be so very hard to share traumatic experiences we've had or information we know about a crime. Here's what you can do to be a person of impact this week. Let people in your circle know that you're someone who is going to listen to their story and give them no judgment or shame. Now, if you have a story to tell and you don't think you have any safe people in your circle, please, again, know that you can share with me. If you liked this episode, be sure to check out some earlier ones. You can also help someone else begin their journey as a different kind of PI, a person of impact, when you share this episode with them. And if you'll go subscribe to the podcast and give me a nice rating and a good review, that helps more people find the work that we're doing here. The Unlovely Truth is written and produced by me, Lori Morrison. Music is by Neocortex, and the artwork is by Shelby Highland. See you all next time.